Hello and welcome to The Gray Area, where I give interviews with developers, talk about gaming news, and give you insights into the industry. My name is Genesee Gray and this is the 123rd episode in a show called Devolving Publishing. Today is Thursday, April 6th, and we're going to talk to Mike Wilson, founding partner and fun slinger, among other things, at Devolver Digital. So welcome to the show, Mike. I'm so glad you're here. Hello. Really glad to be here. So... The first question anyone who listens knows, I always ask, is what's your news of the week? So what have you been up to? What's going on in your world? Uh, mine's pretty easy. <laughs> I, well, easy is a funny word, but it's, uh, I just moved to Canada. Oh. Yeah. Like, just moved. Like, I'm in, I've been in my new house for four days. Okay, wow. So you're still probably in unpacking land and all that. Yeah, surrounded by boxes, getting used to the, uh little differences here and there. Got you. So where did you move from? From Austin, Texas. Okay. <laughs> yeah, a bit, bit of a difference, I think. A little different, yeah. Yeah. So, so are, in, are you in the Montreal side or the the, the non-French yeah. side? Yeah, no, I'm in the uh, British Columbia side. I'm down in Victoria. Oh. Vancouver Island. I would think, and I hear that that's quite a hub for uh, indie gamers and has its own kind of culture there. Are you fitting yep. in well? Uh, I haven't met any of these people yet, at least not on the indie game side, because I'm, you know, surrounded by boxes. Right. And, uh, <laughs> moved up here with my wife and our two dogs and our uh, nine-year-old son. So just trying to get everybody settled in. But yeah, I hear, you know, Vancouver has a lot of the bigger studios and uh, Victoria has a lot of indies. And... I think, like myself, a lot of those indies are here just because they're they're indies because they choose to be, and that's kind of a lifestyle choice, and they can work from anywhere. And uh, this is a pretty good place to be if you can work from anywhere. Awesome. Well, we're going to talk about the members of Devolver and how you guys work together um, remotely and all that stuff in a in a section upcoming, but. Okay. For now, gaming itself, like childhood games. What did you play as a kid? Were you were you a gamer as a kid? I was. I um, <clears throat> was uh, pretty lucky looking back, I guess, because my family is certainly not uh, certainly not technologically minded. But somehow, my house did end up with some early gaming consoles. I, I think the first one we had was the uh, was the Odyssey Two. Oh. I don't know the Odyssey 2. Oh, yeah. Odyssey 2. Maybe Magnavox made that. Okay, Magnavox, I do know. All right. They still exist. (laughs) It was, uh, you know, it worked. It was enough. (laughs) It was enough to get me hooked on some games. And then we got our Intellivision. Yes. And the ColecoVision. Oh, old school. Good stuff. That's right. All old school, but uh, yeah, I, I remember it was definitely one of the first uh, ideas I had about what I wanted to do for a living was to make video games, and I don't know that I ended up actually doing that. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of my questions, like publishing, you know, it's it's a circular kind of uh, orbit around, etc., but like, did you had aspirations of that as a kid, that you would be like a developer? programming yeah. what did you want to do no nobody really knew I'm t- i mean we're talking about the late 70s here so i don't know that the lines had been drawn just yet uh between developing and publishing but i don't think any 
child aspires to be a business person. (laughs) 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 Being the boss is what children aspire to. Yeah, well, that that part can be good. Mm -hmm. I I guess, you know, you run into the problem of no one to blame. (laughs) Well, that's true. I mean, I guess as a child, you imagine that, you know, the powerful decision maker is an awesome place to be. But yeah, the, the downside is all the responsibility. That's right. That's right. But yeah, yeah so I, I didn't, I didn't, I, I think I left that dream uh, when I was probably 13 or 14 and started thinking about more serious vocations. Mm. As you do when people start talking to you about that sort of thing when you're that age. Um, and I came back to it uh, quite accidentally, um, just because I happened to be uh, friends with a guy in high school that was just a pen and paper artist. You know, he was that guy who could draw really well that everyone would ask to do all any, anything that involved art um, at my little school in Louisiana. Hmm. And he ended up um, getting an internship with these guys uh, that ended up being the small band of gypsies that made Wolfenstein and Doom Quake. Yes. <laughs> they were born in Shreveport, Louisiana, in a lake house. Oh, yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice to stumble into that, huh? Yeah, it was nice. And it was, you know, again, quite accidental. Like the fact that that company or those individuals that made up that company found themselves in Shreveport, Louisiana in the uh, late 80s, early 90s is a miracle and mystery unto itself. Um, And then, yeah, the fact that one of them happened to be a good friend of mine and he had sort of begrudgingly learned one computer program so that he could work with these guys. And, uh, yeah, worked out okay for him and for me and for a a whole litany of other people by association. Well, when reading descriptions of that time, it... The, the, the text always says, oversaw the launches of several notable games. Yeah. So what does that mean in practical terms? Like, you know, you know that you're hanging out with this crew. What does oversee the launches when it's 1996 mean? When it was 96, it meant um, we were self-publishing for the first time. And so it meant literally learning soup to nuts, everything on the business side of things, everything that was not actually making the game. Um, so I learned, um, about retail distribution back then. I had, I had to be the one to interface with our salespeople. We used to have a contract sales team because back then you had to also go pitch all the retailers. Mm, 7-Eleven. Yeah, (laughs) 7-Eleven. And and it had moved to Dallas by then, um, also kind of accidentally because, they heard there was no state tax there. Oh, lies. Okay. <laughs> up in, in the Dallas area, that and uh, Scott Miller threw him ten grand to come make Wolfenstein. So <laughs> that's, that's how that happened. And I was in Dallas just by accident as well. It's just kind of the nearest real city that uh, a lot of people go to from towns like Shreveport, Louisiana. And... Uh, yeah, I just kind of followed along with these guys as they became more successful, and they asked when they decided they they didn't want to fight with their publisher in New York anymore. They asked me to come, basically learn that business so that uh, they could self-publish. 
And so that's what I was doing. I was dealing with salespeople, PR people, um, ad agencies to manage the ad creative. This is back when everything was print boxes and print ads, yeah. print manuals, and you know, there was a lot CD manufacturers. <laughs> yeah, for the seven CDs, I'm sure it takes to yeah, play. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a lot. It was a lot to learn, and 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 there was my first project uh, to learn all that was going to be Quake. So no pressure. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, and luckily that game slipped, as, as everything does and did back then, um, and it gave me some time to sort of practice on some smaller some smaller sort of ancillary releases to more stuff in the Doom series and in the Heretic and Hexen mm-hmm. series, so that by the time Quake came around, I sort of somehow had pieced together a fully functional battle station. Wow. From, from which to launch that game. Quake is like a marker in people's lives. That's the day I took off. You know, all of that. Definitely a marker in my life. <laughs> so you meet John Romero and Tom Hall and then move on to Ion Storm? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was John Romero. And my, my friend was Adrian Carmack. He's the aforementioned, aforementioned artist that got me in with the group. And uh, so it was John Carmack, John Romero, Adrian Carmack, no relation, and Tom Hall, and then Jay Wilbur was their business guy that was sort of my mentor in this. Guy, yeah. Um, yeah, and I was in with them for a while. I met all those guys in Shreveport when they were still just playing D&D in their underwear. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually how I met them, was going to play Dungeons & Dragons, and they were all sitting around in their underwear in a dude house. I have a question about that later, but that's off air. Not the underwear part. Yeah, and then I, yeah, so I was with them for a couple of years, and then when John Romero uh, left, I uh, opted to join him because I was was sort of looking at sitting there and waiting for them to make the next Doom or the next Quake or whatever. And and for me, I guess I was 25 or 26 at the time, uh, waiting around for the next couple of years for these guys to make the next sort of iteration of that game seemed super boring to me. And uh, and it wasn't my company, you know, so I, I had aspirations to start my own thing, and uh, Ion Storm was apparently at the time <laughs> a more accelerated path to do that. So I, I think I was the first pe- person to ever leave id of my own volition. Oh, and uh, they were shocked. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I went over to start Ion Storm with John and Tom, which was a, an incredible lesson that year in uh, mostly in ego. <laughs> all of us. We were all, I mean, we were, you know, 20 somethings uh, that were suddenly at the penthouse space in this glass skyscraper in Dallas all the people in the floors below us were angry old men that had worked all their lives to get to that floor of the building oh no (laughs) (laughs) you're like Dai Katana yeah yeah so it was crazy times but um it was a lot of fun got to I got to learn a lot about we brought a lot of uh, foreign employees into that company because they were trying to staff up three teams really quickly and uh you know, there were only so much, so many people in Dallas, and back then it was very much everybody needed to be in the same room. So, 
Gaia. I think, did you have 80 at one point? Like, that's a pretty big studio for just beginning. Yeah, it was. we went from eight employees. I think I was employee number eight. And uh, we went from eight to 88 in the one year I was there. And, uh, yeah, it was a trip. And that was, that was sort of my first exposure, um, not just uh, in my office, but in general to creatives from all over the world. Um, because we were just bringing them in on those visas as fast as we could because uh, those guys were basically just hiring people that had created cool doom or quake levels Got ya. so what's the difference in feel between something like uh, deus ex or doom all the way on the other end to hotline miami and the hits like serious sam like is there a difference in how you feel about when that game is released and you're seeing it you know published or is it all kind of under the same umbrella of you know creative stuff that you're invested in um, well, I mean, I've done, you know, you're talking about my first couple of games and now I've, I think I've been involved in over a hundred games now to publish. So I don't know that it's quite as nerve wracking. And <laughs> <laughs> really? Okay, good. That's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, um, experience is a good thing, you know, and you learn to not panic quite as quickly and that every, every problem can be solved. And, and this, this, sort of new wave of indies that Devolver and Gambitious are in, it feels very freeing to me. It's actually a big return to those early days um, because the teams are small again. Um, we're working with people that are, you know, making hits again and they're having huge success and they're, you know, life-changing success. Um, so that part's a lot of fun and the fact that we don't have to deal with retailers and sales teams and all that anymore and manufacturing, um, it almost feels like we're cheating compared to the work it used to be. God, yeah. Has, uh, has Steam made a big difference in your life as far as, you know, yes. <laughs> yeah, I assume. Like... I have, I have, uh, contemplated getting their, their logo as a tattoo time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you joined several other people I know with that tattoo. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it sounds weird to kiss up to a company with a virtual monopoly, but they are, I mean, in my mind anyway, they are the, the main reason that this uh, new wave of indies could even exist. Whether you're a developer or a publisher, they really just, you know, leveled the playing field and opened up a level of transparency that was it's the only reason my partners and I are still interested in the business because when it was retail based um, it was pretty gross it was just people stealing from each other uh, you know and it was kind of old nasty like things you hear about the music industry and the I don't know anything involving that many middlemen there was just uh, a lot of layers of people screwing each other over and uh, so as hard as it was, it was just as hard back then to have a hit, but then it was even harder to actually get paid when you did have a hit. And uh, it was just, I don't know, it's not, you know, part of the what anybody wants to do is chase down money from shady companies. Okay, yeah. um, so Steam, yeah, I mean, the, the fact that we can actually see what's happening all over the world in real time and in local currencies and just get paid every month like magic um, enables us to just pay our developers every month also like magic you know <laughs> and be super accurate about it um, so it's yeah those 
hats off, you know, and I remember um, I was still at id when they were first contemplating starting Valve and and Steam. They were they were really right on the heels of each other. So that talk about vision um, because it was way too early to be starting a digital distribution company and it sucked and lost money for a good 10 years before it really got any traction. So um, hats off to, to Gabe and that gang. They really, you know, they just got in early and I guess they knew it was too early and it was going to suck for a long time and they just did it. <gasps> you know. Well, it paid uh, off for them in the end. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I cannot imagine how much money they're making every day with their, you know, it's only like 30 people that work at Steam. It's an interesting culture. Like I've uh, I've talked to some people that work there and some Valve, some Valve secrets, etc. It's it's kind of it's kind of neat how they have their own separate world there. It really is a separate world, you know, and and all the companies that would be competing with them, unfortunately, or or fortunately for Valve, are are public companies, or they're tied to public companies or venture funding. Or some external force that makes them unable to compete on a just do good business level like Steam does. Mm-hmm. Um, it's again, it's <laughs> they're small and they're private, and it just gives them such an advantage in my mind over companies that uh, you know if you're on the public market, no matter how well you're doing, you have to do better every quarter, every year, and it's really a broken model, and it's why you see you know once great companies eventually collapse under their own weight because they just can't keep innovating and growing forever. You know, and, and Steam certainly doesn't have to keep innovating, but they keep doing it, you know. And they keep trying new things. And they're not, a, not afraid to fail. Got you. Yeah, it's different when it's you driving your creativity and just allowing yourself to take risks versus, you know, a bottom line that's kind of driving that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what huge advantage they had, you know, Gabe was really well off when they started Valve. <laughs> we won't speak. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about Greenlight as far as the idea of flooding the market with indie choices and how that might affect, you know, success of, of things versus where it kind of used to be? Like, what's your opinion on Greenlight? Um, I think it's a noble effort, you know, and I certainly see why they did it because before that, this tiny group of people who are also programming and building the site and maintaining every game page. And I mean, it, again, this is 30 people, yeah. <laughs> most of whom are literally building the site. And, and, and the fact that I have that Devolver has a couple of people that we get to work with all the time and bug over this naggy crap. I'm just like, how is it, how is this not automated or how have you not hired a hundred <laughs> people for somewhere to do this? Um, so it blows me away that they, um, that they have time to do anything. And, and the, the idea that they were curating, they were responsible for whether people had a chance or not. Um, I certainly see why they wanted to remove themselves from that because, you know, look, there's a, a lot of hit games that nobody at steam would have greenlit. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is one thing we've definitely learned is as good as we think we are at, at our jobs at this point, um, we never know. And I, I think that's why we're. I think that's why we've done well at Devolver is just acknowledging that and reminding each other of that all the time that um, we're not so smart. 
you know. <laughs> and th things will surprise you. <laughs> well, that's the fun of life. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's great, you know, being able to take a chance on some really weird games um, because of the way that economy works and everything doesn't have to be a mainstream hit uh, to be worth our while. Mm-hmm. Well, talking about that and risk taking, etc. Like you've obviously been involved in a number of startups and beginning companies. So, what made you get together with Harry Miller and Rick Stoltz and to say, okay, we're gonna just dive into this and take a chance? Uh, well, it was my experience at ID and then at Ion. I was again researching, was learning all I could about publishing, which was a brand new business back then, and and uh, <clears throat> it was. It was really kind of a crusade. Like I realized that the uh, the artist side of this industry was just getting steamrolled. Right? Id had a terrible deal, and they were way ahead of most in fighting for their rights for what would make a good deal, like control of their IP, you know, putting their name on the box on the front of the box. Um, little things like that that at the time were kind of unheard of because it was just like what it, what always happens when art meets commerce is for a while art gets steamrolled by the smiling men in suits. And, uh, you know, I, I was in a, I realized we were in a position to be that first, uh, group on the, on the publishing side to go, uh, we're here, we know how to do this and we are not going to take advantage of you just because, you know, you're an independent artist. You might not, you know, want to spend your time talking to lawyers all the time. And so it was just, it was a real opportunity that I saw to go and just, I was like, what if we just rounded up a bunch of, you know, strong studios and banded them together like a United Artist or Image Comics back in the day and just gave everybody a great deal, you know, a merit-based deal to where if you made a hit, you got rich. And, and regardless, you were in control of your own artistic destiny and, you know, wouldn't that be a cool company? Wouldn't it be easy to compete with these these big companies that really only have one or two hit games? And the rest is just crap. Um, so it was, you know, I, it was largely through circumstance uh, and, and kismet that I ended up with Harry and Rick. Uh, Harry got into the business around the same time I did. In fact, our we both had the same first job in games. It was actually before it. It was a company called Duango, uh, where they had figured out a way to let people play Doom Deathmatch uh, from their homes against each other over phone lines. This was before uh -huh. internet. Yeah. yeah. So people were paying, you know, per minute or per hour to play, and they they couldn't wait to do it. You know, Until your sister picked up the phone. That's right. That's right. <laughs> And so I met Harry in that company, and uh, when Id sort of hired me away from there to, to start their distribution thing, you know, Harry Harry tells it that he figured he had never seen me again. And uh, of course, I went to Id. I took that job, and then and then John Carmack a few months later made Quake work over the internet for free. So pretty much putting Duango. Yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, um, so Harry was looking for a job, and there was a new team that had just split off the Duke Nukem team, uh, 3D Realms. There was a lot of spawning of teams in, in Dallas in the 90s. Every time somebody made a hit, there would be some small group out of that team that wanted to go start their own company. 
and that's how all those companies came into existence. Anyway, this one was called Ritual Entertainment, and they needed a business guy, and I knew Harry, and so I introduced them. Uh, and like most developers, the first business guy they meet that doesn't seem super shady, <laughs> okay, he's fine. <laughs> he's okay. And, uh, and then Harriet continued to work on the Gathering of Developers plan with me, the God Games plan, which was this sort of United Artist crusade mm-hmm. for the developer side of the business. And then Rick, who's been with us through all of these companies now, um, I literally met because I threw a front yard barbecue party. What? <laughs> lived in one of those neighborhoods where nobody talked to each other. They just sort of nodded and waved for what seemed like it could have gone on for an eternity. So I threw a front yard barbecue party. <laughs> You're shattering my illusions of Texas. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was, uh, I figured, you know, it's a way to meet the neighbors, and it wasn't as committal because nobody would go in a stranger's house or in their backyard because then they're really there if they hate us. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the front yard's yard. safe. I yeah, see. Everybody's like, yeah, I'll swing by. And Rick was a, mm-hmm. uh, he was working in, I don't know, healthcare insurance industry or something. He wanted to kill himself every day. Oh. Like, literally, he wanted to. <laughs> it's like office space. So, Yeah. It was absolutely like office space, and it was, you know, in Dallas, like office space. <laughs> and uh, he was wearing a tie every day and wanted to hang himself from it every day. And he's telling me this, and I was like, well, I don't have any money for this company yet, but I'm starting a publishing company, and I'm going to need a spreadsheet jockey because that's not me. And uh, he was like, I will do all of your spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> and I will, you know, do it for free until you have money to pay me. Wow. And yeah, that was, um, geez, coming up on 20, geez, it was 98. Oh my God. It's a long time ago. <laughs> it's a long time ago. 97, 98. Yeah. Wow. Yep. And he's been with us ever since. And nobody knows how to build that game publisher spreadsheet quite like Rick Stoltz. <laughs> awesome. At this point, it's the same original spreadsheet iterated about 150 times. So how do you all work together? Because it sounds like it's remote, and now you're in Canada, and everyone's kind of where they are. How do you coordinate and keep things flowing? Uh, You know, it's very organic, and, you know, we've all been at it for long enough to where anybody can step in and do a deal now. Anybody can deal with Sony or Microsoft or Valve um we just kind of i don't know it's it's i feel like we're surfing sometimes we're just taking projects as they come we don't really have a plan for how many games we're going to do every year you know we're constantly surprised um by a game we have a lot of games that are over a year late or sometimes two or three years late (laughs) ah okay and uh you know we just Luckily, we've done well enough, and we've kept the company small and lean enough that we can really adjust easily with what comes our way. I don't know. It's just it's like a, just a friendship, you know, and everybody knows, you know, certain things come in, and we're like, oh, that, we should probably talk to Mike, or you should probably talk to Nigel, or whatever. Um, but it's all very intuitive. Somebody asked me to draw an org chart once, and I just couldn't. I just drew a circle. Wow. Okay. <laughs> And, must uh, all get along really well. Yeah, and everybody's 
Everybody just respects one another, and you know, we work from home, and we meet um, in one another's living rooms. And in Austin, there were four of us, and there were two in London. And uh, so we would just take turns bouncing around whoever's house was available, and the other two would be on Skype. And so now it's three in a living room and three on Skype since I've moved. But um, it's it's again, it's very we're very nimble, and everybody trusts one another enough, one another, sorry, enough to just you know let each other take turns kind of naturally handling things as they come up. So it's fun. Everybody has an equal vote. Um, you know, we bonus everybody out equally. So when something does well, we all do well. And I don't know. It takes just that alone, just being kind of socialist about the money part of things and the votes uh, removes a lot of potential political problems, you know, within any partnership. Gotcha. Now, the indie companies I know um, and normal indie companies have an interesting, see the air quotes, relationship with publishers, as you've kind of mentioned a little bit. How does Devolver do this differently? Do you, do you lower them with Oreos? Like, how do, you, how do you win the trust of the elusive indie company that appears? You know, it's mostly um, most developers for a while while we were establishing ourselves. It was just one sort of introducing us to the next, you know, and, and when somebody was successful with us, um, other developers would reach out to them directly and be like, so you worked with Devolver on this, they're a publisher, <laughs> you know, do you promise, like, they just paid you, like, they just, they, they weren't, you promise they, they paid you, okay, they paid you, and they didn't try to control the game, you know, and, and honestly, I've probably talked too much about this secret sauce because there's like 12 companies saying exactly what Devolver says now, but that's good. That's what we wanted is to, to create a movement uh, for publishers in this, this time where developers don't really need a publisher. Um, and so the only way you can compete now is to do it in a sort of publisher 2.0 or whatever you want to call it, a lightweight, check your ego kind of way. And I think most publishers now, if they want to compete at all on the indie side, they have to they have to give all creative control to the developers. They have to brand themselves um, below the developers. They have to uh, be transparent, you know, financially, and and people know what a good deal is now. So, um, again, our, our biggest trick is just constantly checking our own egos and deferring to. Uh, the creatives we work with, even if they've never made a game before. And like I said, I've several of us have been involved in an awful lot of games at this point, but we still absolutely defer every time, every decision to the developers. Um, even when it's marketing and PR stuff, we make suggestions and then they have the final say. And a developer, if they want to, can sign off on every single screenshot that's ever put out, you know, every word of every release or whatever. And and just by giving them that option, um, I think it endears trust, you know. And and after a while, they're like, "Well, you guys are pretty good at this. I should probably just, you know, let you handle it, whatever." But the magic happens when you relinquish control. And um, a lot of people in business, in general, you know, the golden rule is he who has the money makes the rules. Hmm. And 
if you just let go of that notion and don't be seduced by the fact that you could exercise some power over somebody else because you're the one in the equation providing the money, um, if you can just let go of that and go, yeah, we're providing the money, but that's not really the important part of this equation. The important part is whatever magic is going to happen to make this thing fun and to make it successful and resonate with an audience. So, um, I don't know. I don't know if that answered your question, but that's that's basically how we operate is we, we don't think too much of ourselves. Gotcha. Now, I know I've seen some PR from you guys. I believe Broforce was in my uh, email at one point, um, especially when it comes to, like, press and, and stuff. So how does, how does the PR stuff work? Like, which of you handles that, if any? Do you outsource that? Like, who, who's pushing, like, the, I guess, the info out there? Um, we have a network of amazing PR people um, globally. And uh, most of the stuff you see would be from uh, Stephanie Tinsley here in the States. And, you know, she just, uh, I've had the good fortune of working with so many really, really strong PR people, uh, women in particular in my career. And so I respect the hell out of them, you know, and I came, I came into this business with a healthy respect of uh, public relations and, and how important it was to, to let those people do their jobs. And so Stephanie is somebody we worked with. Um, I think I worked with her for the first time when we were still, when we were Gamecock Media Group. And she just really impressed us. And back then I really, I was in charge of, PR or as far as working with the PR people and now it's a combination of Nigel and I and and then Graham our guy in London uh, sort of deals with the the big team in Europe and the rest of the world Um, and they sort of follow the US lead for the most part but it's you know again it's assembling a, a network of people that you trust and letting them do their jobs and not trying to control the way that's done too much you know and they do the same thing. They they give us they defer to us, of course, as the client, but they make strong suggestions and, and we usually listen to them because of that sort of mutual respect. Speaking about PR, the news uh, has been talking about Devolver for GDC this year, which has a little bit of a political touch on it, but basically the cool thing about you guys opening up your display space at GDC to show off some work so can you go into that and kind of explain what that was about um you know we've really tried hard um at devolver it's been challenging the last few years but we've we've tried hard to stay out of politics um publicly and just leave that to everybody's personal you know tastes or whatever and it really has no no business in in our business in publishing and uh keeping in mind that we have a global audience um we really try to respect that, you know, things that, that seem like travesties here might not seem like such a big deal to a lot of the people we work with or the gamers that buy our games or whatever. But this, um, when the whole Muslim travel ban happened, that was just politics aside. That was just a very concrete thing that, you know, cert- certain developers that were planning on going to GDC were not going to be able to go. Um, even though that ban eventually got lifted before GDC, a lot of these people had already canceled their plans to go. 
And so for us, that really wasn't about politics. It was just like, well, that's a bummer because, you know, these, it's a big show for a lot of people. It's a really important show, maybe the most important show of the year for a lot of developers. And it's the time where we field pitches. Um, it's the one show where we're actually there just to take pitches from developers in person versus the email pitch and Skype that we usually uh, employ. And so it was just a, a little concrete thing we could do that didn't feel too political. It was just like, oh, that sucks that you can't come. Uh, we've got some space. Can we help you with that? Um, and that's just because, you know, we, we think that the coolest thing about GDC and one of the coolest things about what we do is, is that we get to work with people from all over the world and we're constantly learning from them. <clears throat> Different perspectives. And we have, I love the idea that we have friends. Um, you know, business associates, but inevitably a bunch of them become friends all over the world that live a completely different reality than we do and can really uh, help us with our own perspectives. You know, it, it's maybe my favorite thing about this business is that it's so global and so open. And uh, so anyway, that's what that was about. We just thought it was a bummer that some people weren't going to be able to come and we kind of put ourselves in their shoes as to how much that would suck if we were them and open the doors, you know, and it, I think it, we ended up only showing one game because a lot of the uh, developers just, they, they didn't fully trust because they didn't know us. They're like, I don't know, or, or they weren't, they weren't trusting enough to just have somebody they didn't know at all that had no contractual relationship with them showing their game gotcha. for the first time. And a lot of the developers, honestly, like, I think twice as many developers plan to go to GDC every year as go, and it's largely because they just aren't ready. When GDC comes around, yeah. they realize they're not quite ready to actually show anything to anybody. It's a big deal but, setting up for a show. I mean, it's a lot to move and have ready, and the anxiety about someone seeing your work in a large form of people. It's really stressful, and imagine how much more stressful it is if you're coming from some far-flung country you know that you know you're going going to america you're going right. not just america but you're going to san francisco where all the best game developers in the world are going to be and there's a lot of reasons to not go yeah it's brave are yeah. you going to be affected by um the h1b visa possibilities of you know have people not being able to work here any longer that from other countries like, is that going to affect devolver at all uh i don't think so that's cool i mean we don't we're not we haven't hired anybody in that visa yet, and, and like I said, everybody we work with is free to live wherever they live. Um, so, yeah, it's a bummer. I mean, I, I really see it as a brain drain that could happen if we're um, not just not just uh, slowing how many people we let in on that program, but actually they're talking about actually kicking them out. And the problem with that is these people they're here because they're smart <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they're right. bringing, they're bringing something that we couldn't otherwise bring um, without going through the immense amount of pain in the ass paperwork that it is to bring somebody over like that. And it really is a lot of work. And, you know, and, and so you're exposing them to your secrets as well and, and learning from them. And then to kick them out and send them back to where they came from with all of yeah, all of your secrets? All of your secrets and their ability to compete uh, directly from having learned, you know, from your, your shop or whatever. Again, doesn't affect Evolver, but in big studios and big 
big tech companies, I could see it being a real problem. And I just, I don't know, it seems really counterintuitive. Because, um, you know, if, if we had enough people that were good enough at their jobs, we would, most companies wouldn't be, I mean, certainly some companies are, are, are doing it for usury reasons. And people call it uh, modern slavery or whatever, because you get them over here on that visa and your company and they're attached and they can't quit without going home. Um, so I'm sure there's 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 always uh, a lot of different angles to any story, but um, that one in particular, yeah, I want all the brains coming here. We need all the help we can get. Awesome. So uh, we're wrapping up here, getting close to the end. I guess experience that you learned the most from, like throughout your entire career. Do you have one thing that sticks out, and you say, okay, well, that's good to pass on. Um. Gosh. Take especially more wild stories from you, Mike. I've been reading up. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a lesson. <laughs> um, don't, don't, don't be who the press wants you to be. <laughs> uh... Imagine you to be. Um, um, I will say that year at Iron Storm, you know, I said was such an educational year, and I really did learn that um, just one person with um, with enough sort of, uh, I don't know, what I consider to be insecurities, like a totally solvable problem. Um, one person really, really did kind of take that company in a, a bad direction all by himself. And I'm not going to name that person. It wasn't John Romero. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Thanks for naming that. Okay. But um, I, I really had no idea that in a, in a company that big that one person that's really focused on it all the time on themselves and how to na navigate politics and all that could really affect that many people. And so if I ever, certainly if I, as I form new partnerships, I, I think about that a lot and think about, you know, who, who you're really marrying because you really are marrying somebody when you start a company with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the worst thing that can happen is you're successful and then you're stuck with this person that might not have been the best choice. Uh, that, that's when things get really bad is when there's money involved, you know? And, um, yeah, I don't know. That's, it's, it's one of the things I would pass on to people considering starting their own company is really, really think about that whole partnership thing. Um, but at the same time, I think partners are great. I would never start a company by myself. And uh, I, conversely, for small for small indies, I would say um, we've learned at Devolver that a team of one, it, you really have this card stacked against you, you know, for a lot of reasons, regardless of talent. Um, whereas teams of two or three do really well, and and I don't mean like you know you've got this person that you contract for a couple hundred bucks to do this or that. That doesn't count. I mean like the core for trying to get a project done mm -hmm. and it's pretty important to have somebody to, to you know, uh, pick up your slack when you run out, inevitably you run out of energy and motivation. Yeah. Well, there's accountability there too, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think some partners are good. <laughs> <laughs> the right partners are good. I see. The right partners are good and everything doesn't have to be forever either. You know, so a lot of a lot of the teams we work with don't even actually set up companies for projects anymore. Um, they just have a basic agreement that this is where you know, this is where the money goes and 
you know, which leaves a, leaves a lot of openings for if you're successful and, and one person wants to screw over the other one. But I think uh, a lot of people are just like, if somebody doesn't want to work with me, I don't, I don't want to work with them either. You know, so yeah, what are you going to do? Legally bound to do so. Got it, yeah. Yeah. And having contracts that tie people together that don't want to work together is uh, not a good idea. That's another very basic concept that, uh, has worked really well for us in publishing is, you know, the, the predominant wisdom was you have to own the IP or when you have a hit, these developers are just going to go, they can just leave you and go work with somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that's the truth. That's the absolute truth. But if they don't want to work with you, why in the hell would you want them, you know, contractually committed to working with you? And, you know, it, these things sound really obvious when I say them, but I, I got to tell you, it's it's decades of undoing of uh, business practices to get people to that point, and it's, it comes back to that same, just relinquishing of control, uh, or the, the illusion of control, because you just don't want to work with an artist that doesn't want to work with you, like it's or or a business person that doesn't want to work with you. It just it's I don't know, the, the that very idea that you would trap somebody in there like. I don't know, like, you remember when Prince changed his name to Symbol? Yes. It was because he was contractually tied to Warner Brothers. Oh, you know? He okay. owned his name, and he literally couldn't record anything as Prince. I feel for Avril Lavigne and some other people that are sort of, yeah. Yeah, they, that's the way that industry works. They literally own their names, and they can't perform. They can't do what they do under their own name, under those contracts. And so... It's that bad where somebody would change their name that they've, you know, worked all their lives to establish. Mm -hmm. and, uh, anyway, it's it's uh, it doesn't have to be that way for our industry, luckily, but it was it was definitely headed that way for a while. Gotcha. So, anything else you want to share before we close? Mm -hmm. No, this has been fun. An hour goes faster than. <laughs> So where can people find out more? I mean, obviously, they can go to Devolver, but are there any sites or any kind of social places you want them to look? Um, you know what? I did want to – actually, I did want to talk a little bit about Gambitious. I don't know how much you know about that. Yeah, I've seen that on your Facebook, but honestly, I'm not real familiar. What's up with that? So it started off as a um, an equity crowdfunding platform, and that's where people you know crowdfund games, but then they get money back. And we've we've been waiting for that to happen for about a decade. And when Obama signed the Jobs Act back in 2012, we jumped in with this Dutch company that already had a platform. Um, and Is when it kind of like Fig? Like, how does it compare to? It's it's a lot like Fig. Um, Fig came later, and they are doing a different thing. They're they're doing public facing, you know, crowdfunding, like closer to Kickstarter. Okay. And they're doing it just for the general public to be able to invest, which we actually decided not to do because, A, it involves a ton of uh, lawyers and SEC work. And, I mean, the, just the price tag to put together one of those deals uh, would fund a whole other game for us. Uh -huh. <laughs> so it seems kind of wasteful. And, and honestly, I don't know how I feel about just the general public uh putting in money and, and if they're not used to looking at investments and they're just throwing in money that maybe they can't afford to, 
um, because they're a fan of some game and they don't really have the business acumen to check it out. So, so what we're doing instead is we're just building a network of people that can afford to lose some money that, you know, that invest in various things. And we're just providing them with a really safe way to invest in indie games. Mm. Yeah. And we invest alongside with them. Devolver is the biggest partner in the company. And then Crow Team and Flying Wild Hog, two of the developers we've been successful with, are also owners of it. And the whole point of the whole thing is just to be able to green light more, to, to do more Devolver-like deals and do that by building up this network of there's plenty of people interested in investing in games, but there's really not a lot of ways to do it safely and alongside people that know what they're doing. So I just want to bring that up because a lot of people hear about Gambitious in relation to Devolver, but like yourself, even somebody that's super steeped in the culture has no idea what it really is. So Yeah, no, this is very cool. Yeah, it's, it's and, and it... Gambitious has a separate publishing team that we've been building and teaching in the, the way of the Devolver. <laughs> okay. And so we've just raised some money. So you'll see that company's sort of beginning to grow and step out a little bit. And um, uh, it's good news. It's just another company doing business fairly that um, is introducing new money to the industry in, a, in a, what I consider to be a more responsible way. Um, than the Kickstarter way, which is, I feel like, just uh, treating, it's not having a lot of respect for people's money the way it currently runs. So unlike Kickstarter or other options, um, we don't give all the money to the developer up front. <laughs> you know, you know we, we do it like a publisher would do and pay on milestones and actually ah, help them. A motivation. Well, and we we actually help the teams think it through. How much do they really need? And you know, they say the game's going to be on PS4. Do they really even know what that means? Do they have they ever done that? And and we just help a team think it all the way through and come up with a price tag that we think is right, and then build in a contingency fund. And then we actually help these teams um, hit their milestones and be successful. And then that way we can return the money to the investors, and they do it again. You know, instead of this sort of one-time, well, yeah, I put some money in a game once and nothing ever came out, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, what happens to most people that are new to it or new to investing in entertainment anyway. So that's what we're doing. We're trying to build a, a long-term, uh, you know, a way for crowdfunding to exist in games in a way that's sustainable, that's not just, remember when everybody was giving money in Kickstarter? Yeah. It seems like that's the way that's headed. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so the it, uh, trust is being broken there a lot. Yeah, and we, as a publisher, we see it a lot. We see teams that get, you know, twice what they asked for on Kickstarter, and then they're still coming to us for more money to finish because they just didn't know what they were doing. Or because just human nature-wise, um, all best intentions aside, if you give anybody the money for any project all up <laughs> It's just not going to work out, you know. <laughs> Scope creep. It's not. It's it's it's, and it's not because they're bad people. But I don't care if you're building a house or building a game or making a movie or whatever you're doing. If you just write a check for all of it up front, it will be gone very quickly. Ah, yes. Interesting. Okay, so that's ambitious.com. Is there any other social site you want people to visit for that? I'm looking at it on Facebook as well. You can look yeah, it up. Yeah, it's on Facebook and Twitter and 
I think it's Gambitious Inc. on Twitter. But we've published, uh, I guess, 14 games now, something like that. And we haven't had any hits yet. We've had some sort of pretty good games, and we've had some not-so-good games. But um, I think it's – we've published 15 games now, and 12 of those have returned all the money to investors inside the first six months. Wow. So that's what's exciting about it because if we want something that's not hit-based, you know, that you don't have to make a hit for it to work. Um, you just have to make a decent – game you know that has some chance in the market to recoup and then you have to have partners that that know how to do that and know how to get the money back that's that's where we come in and so yeah when people do make hits it's you know it's very good news for for all (laughs) the investors involved and for the developers and the developers don't have to give up anything they just they just sign a deal just like they would with devolver and all the going to get the money from the investors and all that stuff happens behind the scenes. So as far as developers are concerned, it's just another good publishing option. Awesome. As always, you can find me at Genesee.com. Talk to me on Twitter at Genesee or at Gray Area Podcast. And listen on iTunes, where you probably are right now, for the Gray Area Podcast. If you feel like leaving a review, that would be awesome. Um, could definitely use some more of those. And hopefully you'll join us for the next episode.